Hello, and welcome to So Curious, a new podcast from the Franklin Institute. In this season, Human 2.0, we will be talking to scientists and non-scientists about technology, innovation, and the human experience. We are your hosts. I'm Angelica Pasquini. And I am Deboa Bay, but you could just call me Bay. On today's episode, we're going to be talking with material scientist, Dr. John A. Rogers, and Chief Innovation Officer at Penn Medicine, Roy Rosen. Today, we're going to be talking about wearable technology. What is the most um, advanced thing you've ever created? <laughs> what? Oh, man, I don't know. It might be a sandwich. <laughs> the most advanced thing that I have ever created is likely a song, right? But I would love to, you know, uh, move forward in the future and think about, I, I've brought this up before, like, you know, behavioral you know, uh, functionalities in music and, and how do you change moods? Um, and it would be awesome. I don't know, maybe in the future, there's like a watch or a phone that lets you know that this song will likely make you feel better. Um, there's playlists that, you know, that are titled upbeat and so on and so forth, but maybe there will be playlists in the future that has like backed up data and backed up technology that will prove or, or, or show that there's a high likelihood that this song will make you dance or this song will make you, you know, I don't know, feel good. <laughs> <laughs> when you first think of something and then you finally get to listen to it back, what is that process like for you, basically from concept to finished creation? Yeah, innovation and creating isn't necessarily something I feel I ever have a... a, um, a, a an entire and complete and absolute grasp on. I have a thought and an idea and a feeling that I'm trying to evoke or connect. And so you tinker and you work in your workshop or your laboratory or your studio, music or otherwise, and you, uh, you know, see what, how close you can get to that. But in the process of doing that, you discover other things. And I think that's what's really cool. And that's also a parallel between, you know, writing comedy, writing music, and also, I don't know, writing DNA or writing... Uh, tech that that people can you know use for their health, wellness, mental, and so on. You are in the process. You're never quite sure where you are, but you keep asking questions to guide you along. Um, I would say for me, there's the idea, and then there's exactly where you think it's gonna go, and then you have these moments of uh, hating it, and then walking away, and then you kind of like have this eureka moment. And the cool thing about technology that I think happens to people is like they they're working one way and then one one day you realize, oh, no, this is it. Or, oh, yes, this is it. rather. <laughs> and that happens to me a lot. I'll have one line and then just have so much fun playing with it for like a long time. And then and then it come, turns into something else. Our first guest is Roy Rosen. Roy Rosen has been the Chief Innovation Officer at Penn Medicine since 2012, where he works with leaders across the health system in order to turn ideas into measurable impact in terms of health outcomes, patient experience, and new revenue streams. After earning an MBA at Stanford, Rosen got his start at the software company Intuit, where he created an internal incubator that focuses on turning ideas into actions and change the way Intuit handles new business creation. Rosen believes in falling in love with the problem and that it's not just about the technology, it's also about the team. Hi, Roy. Can you please introduce yourself? 
Hi, my name is Roy Rosen. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at Penn Medicine. How are you? I'm good, Ray. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Let's get right into this. Can you talk about the first moments of you creating or innovating something? That's such an interesting question. I never really thought of myself as an innovator. And I went to a company that sort of encouraged creativity. This is back at Intuit uh, out in Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, I think it was just a small enough company that everyone was encouraged to take a lot of accountability about solving problems that they saw. And so, you know, that's really the way I think about the beginning of, of being innovative was, was more just having the freedom and independence uh, of thought to, to say, hey, there's a problem. I think I can go solve it. Long before we understood really what friction meant and how to reduce friction to, to improve products. I remember when the Internet first came around. Just thinking about how, how what everyone was doing was, was just getting stock prices. And one day I was just using, I think it was probably Microsoft Word, where, you know, they have this little drop down. You can look at your last files, right, you know, and, and pick a file that you'd used recently. And I was thinking to myself, you know, why don't you do that for stock prices? Why don't you, why don't you remember all the things you looked up in the past? Why don't you just make it a save function at the end? You know, so all of a sudden it was, you know, you'd keep going back to the same site where you could get all the stocks at once instead of one at a time. The innovation wasn't about the little things, right? It was about the fact that you could take an idea and you could act on it. You could try something and see if it worked or if it didn't work. And over time, you know, those little ideas became whole products and whole businesses, um, which, uh, which are the ones that I think I'm both most proud of and, and probably the ones that were material to the company. You mentioned friction. What is that and how does that play into innovation? I think a lot of what drew me to Penn was this, this study of behavioral science, of, of changing what people do, right? Changing what they choose or don't choose, the decisions they make or fail to make. And, and, and the world is just full of friction, right? You know, it, things that get in our way, they get in the way of doing the right thing too often. When I think about what changes behavior, whether this is in software, technology, whether this is out in the world, you know, I tend to think of it now in terms of friction, things that either get in the way or make things easier to do. The, it, people tend to do the easiest thing to do, like water flows to the lowest point, you know? And I think the reality is when you get rid of friction, you change behavior. If you make something easier to do, more people will do it. That, that, it's sort of that simple. You know, in the health world, we want to have people take healthier behaviors. If you make it harder to get the unhealthy food and easier to get the healthy food, you'll, you'll see a change, right? You know, so it's friction management is a big deal. I was seeing that you were talking about the difference between innovation and creativity, and how sometimes those are looked at as the same thing, and, and that's not right. Can you talk a little about that? You know, creativity and invention are about novelty and, and doing something that's new. I, I think about innovation a little bit differently in that innovation sort of implies you've captured value from those new things. I mean, so if you've invented something that's new that nobody ever buys or nobody ever uses, I'm not sure you've actually innovated. You've definitely invented something. You've been creative to think of something that's not been done before. But there's this gap between creative, you know, creativity, invention, and value capture. And innovation has this, this sense that you've actually done something that matters and you've actually done it in a way that you can capture value from it. Sometimes you think you're creating value and you're not. <laughs> yeah. Well, which also means that you have to be able to measure value because, you know, right. some people think of that in terms of economic value. Sometimes you might think of that as societal humanity value. So, so you know, you get to define the needle you're trying to move, but it means that the needle has moved. Innovation implies the ability to move that needle and capture value. Why do you think it's so important to turn ideas into impact? 
what I often say is you have to turn ideas into action, right? Because you have to do something to learn something. A lot of times you have this idea you think is a great idea and in your head it's a wonderful idea, but then it meets the reality of the world and it doesn't work at all. The thing that I think we and the whole industry and everyone trying to do good problem solving has learned over the last you know, decade or two is that you've got to test these things as quickly as possible. You build this beautiful you know, castle in your head about the way things are going to be. You got to go figure out the way things really are. You don't know what human beings are going to do. You don't know how they're going to use it. You don't know whether they want it. You don't know any of those things. You don't know if it's going to work or not. I appreciate that answer so much. I know as an artist, as a creative, I have ideas all day. I kind of get locked into, to, to, I guess, paralysis through analysis. Yeah. In the early days, uh, I, I remember one of the, the big, big failures, um, you know, in my earlier part of my career was this concept of Quicken brokerage. And we had 15 million active users on Quicken. We had built the largest consumer software, you know, business out there. Total bomb, you know, absolute, complete failure. No, nobody was interested. It was not a good idea. It's not what they wanted from us. And uh, it was a really interesting experience to, you know, to learn from that type of uh, failure to say, wow, that's not the way you do these things. What's the importance of failure and in innovation and being creative? You know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of my favorite topics because I think in the old days, people used to say, hey, make it okay to fail, create a culture where failure is okay. And I think what most people mean when they say that is make it okay to fail fast and cheap, right? The evolution of innovation and innovation methodology is that you can learn more quickly and more cheaply that you're going in the wrong direction. What's really going on is that you have a hypothesis, an assumption, you are designing an experiment using these new methods where you can do it super fast and super cheap. And, and actually, it feels more like you've invalidated a hypothesis than failure, right? You basically, yeah, you found you were wrong and it's okay to be wrong. But being, it, having it be okay to be wrong has a different connotation than like, hey, failure, because people think failure, oh my God, you lost $10 million. So how many of us can lose $10 million in you know, two years of our lives? So, hey, you know what? lose two weeks of your life and lose $200. That's the way I try to think about failure now is figure out as quickly as possible you're going in the wrong direction. So, Roy, you have a genius philosophy. Would you mind walking us through the couple of philosophies that you have, explain them to us and how you came up with them um, and how they apply to your work? The first one that I love a lot is fall in love with the problem and not the solution. Yeah, you know, and, and most of these uh, are philosophies that I've adopted or adapted. I don't know how many I came up with myself, but Scott Cook, who's the founder of, uh, of Intuit, and, and Brad Smith, who was our CEO for a long time, we used to talk about this fall in love with the problem all the time. You know, and it was just because you'd see so many cases where you had to iterate or pivot or change directions, and you ultimately found a success. And so, you know, we would look at these things and say, well, how do you get to the, the, the winner when you're usually starting with a, with a loser. On my very first day of work here at, at Penn, a bunch of people wanted to do uh, online scheduling for doctor's appointments. It's a great idea, we should do it. It's way more convenient. But if you get down to what they were solving for, right? You know, the, the actual problem, the actual problem was you can't get in to see a doctor. So if we had gone off and done that kind of open table online scheduling, it would have simply been faster and easier to see you can't get in. That's not the goal. The goal is to get in, right? Not to make it easier to see you can't get in, right? So, so if you're falling in love with the problem of getting a new patient visit faster, you're going to do something different. 
you know, and, and our teams here at Penn did a whole bunch of things differently. You know, things like load balancing where, hey, maybe you can't get in there, but I can get you in over here at a different part of town. Or, or even I can redesign the way we do care and free up some spots from people who may not need them so much. You know, so there are other ways to get people in faster, but it wasn't going to be the open table online scheduling. Being efficient. I love that. And very quickly, can you talk about the five so what's? Yeah, these things are, are really linked, right? My favorite story, and I tell the story all the time, is the Hertz rent-a-car story. This really tells the difference between the five whys and the five so what's, because this is people know about the five whys, right? Get to the root cause, don't attack the symptoms. That's the five whys. So if you're looking at renting a car back in the 1980s when I'm coming out of school, you're in that line for hours, right? You knew what the problem was. The problem was this incredibly slow line. So you define the problem as a slow line. What's better? Faster line. So you start doing the five whys, right? Why is the line so slow? Why is the line so slow? But if you go the other way, instead of asking why, 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 you ask, so what, so what, right? You say, well, what would be good about a faster line? What you're really trying to do is shrink the time between your plane landing and when you're on your way. As soon as you realize the metric is not the speed of the line, it's how quickly you're on your way. Now you can actually invent Hertz Gold. There's no line. And in fact, as soon as you realize it's, the, it's really how quickly you're on your way, you could even beat Hertz Gold, right? Somebody picks you up a baggage claim or Elon Musk sends a self-driving car and it's right there outside baggage claim. You don't even go to the car rental place at all. So that's what we try to do is like get real deep on what's what is the person you're trying to help really solving. Sometimes you don't know that you have a problem until you see the solution. That's the cool thing about innovating is that we can like help people realize there's always a better way. A lot of times we get used to stuff in our environment that is friction back to the friction point. Right. You know, you just work around it. And I think, you know, the more people get trained to observe what's around them, and say, hey, that's not right. I, that could be better. The start of a lot of innovation is literally just noticing things. Absolutely. And then it sounds like surrounding yourself with people who are open to listening to your new ideas. And that's what this whole show is about, is connecting with people. 100%. Yeah. And, and hearing their new ideas. And uh, we've learned a lot. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and taking the time. I appreciate you having me. I mean, I think those connections are absolutely essential. It's, it's an amazing thing when you get an interdisciplinary team together who all see that problem from different angles. And that's how you generally go from that insight to some kind of solution that works. Totally. Beautiful. Love that. Love that. Yeah, what absolutely. a beautiful way to end. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Okay, so that conversation definitely has my gears turning. Uh -huh. I love the focus and the perspective of falling in love with the problem. That changed everything at that point when I was thinking about like, you know, all the things that I work on in terms of music and creative collaboration. Yeah, it's like all perspective. I love that he was talking about that. Yeah, how do you engage with solutions or hurdles, whatever that might look like? Walking away and right. then coming back. <laughs> A head start. Maybe? I think it's great to take space. Yeah. Because the dwelling on something is really where the problem gets worse. I mean, you're hitting right on it, right? In the, in the conversation, he said, you know, he didn't do certain things with a laser lock focus. Mm -hmm. He And it's just, I don't know, it always hits me as, I don't know, it's funny, I guess, serendipitous mm -hmm. when you do something unintentional without focus and it connects so deeply with people. It's true. I mean, the most ironic thing is like the less that you focus and worry and try too hard, the more beautiful things end up showing up. Yeah, I guess it's that conscious and subconscious brain, you know, dance going back and forth. Totally. And I think for the future, someone like this is really 
trailblazing and helping people sort of free themselves up to really innovate and think big, you know, think outside the box, think in ways that actually um, make huge differences. And sometimes like with not so much efforting, more like working smarter, not harder. So now that we've discussed how big ideas are generated, let's talk to someone who makes big ideas reality. Our last guest, John A. Rogers, is a professor of material science and engineering, biomedical engineering, and neurological surgery. His interests and research cross many diverse fields, all with the purpose of providing insights into our health and better understanding of our bodies so that we might extend the human lifespan. Among all of Rogers' incredible innovations, his development of wearable technologies called Epidermal Electronic Systems, or EES, has the potential to transform the way we treat patients. EES are wireless, flexible, battery-free, and can be used as heart monitors to monitor electrolytes or even to map the brain. Hey, John, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, so maybe I'll just start by recapping, you know, wearable technology as it exists today. And and many people are familiar with the Fitbit and the Apple Watch and all sorts of related uh, types of devices that kind of mount on the wrist. Anyway, many, many different types of uh, commercially available devices of that type. Those are known as wearables, and uh, they've kind of defined the category and I think they're great devices. They have broad adoption. Uh, they're, they're useful for many types of applications. Uh, but I think where body integrated devices, thinking about wearables more generally, not just those that you know kind of loosely couple to, to the wrist or the, or the finger, but, but body skin integrated devices that offer medical grade information streams continuously. So thinking about like the measurements that are done in an intensive care unit, how could you reproduce that kind of monitoring function in the form of a, of a thin, soft patch that, that could mount on a relevant part of the body, not just the wrist, but really kind of anywhere on the body? I, I think the most meaningful applications are going to be with people who really need the monitoring capabilities, that there's a real compelling medical requirement you know, to stay healthy. You really need to use this device. And I think a lot of that fear drops away. These are not, at least initially, you know, designed for healthy people. Totally. And what what really impressed me was like just a, a, an adhesive sticker, like a small sticker. This this what I saw on like a infant's chest and like how that can actually work as a battery free, flexible wireless device that is monitoring the infant's heart rate. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, the vision that we had is to build an electronic monitoring system in the form factor of a kid's temporary tattoo. That would almost be the ideal type of physical form, you know, for a device of this type. You put it on, you don't even know it's there, maybe even have graphics on top. It looks cool. You know, that's what we uh, had in mind. And we were able to do that. Any points or emphasis in your career that made you realize that you wanted to focus on improving experience? There wasn't a specific moment in time. I guess, you know, as my career has evolved, I've always been interested in new technologies and engineering. And I think devices that have an impact on human health uh, for us represent the most compelling opportunity. In your head in the in the beginning, did it look similar in your mind to what you ended up creating? Pretty much, you know, I think uh, we kind of had the idea and I actually created a slide. So I, I took a temporary tattoo, put it on my arm and took some pictures of it and like 
squeeze my skin and stretch it around. You can see how the tattoo responds in that way. And I told my students, you know, we want to build electronics that look like that. And those pictures created great visual, keep the students kind of focused on, on the end goal. And uh, I think they got excited about yeah. it too. Yeah, you know, it's a very strong motivating factor. You know, when you're slogging it out in the lab late at night, you're thinking about, you know, if this is successful, you know, all these different things are going to happen. And how long are you in that process with people? That's a great question. I mean, I think you kind of have the vision, okay? And that doesn't take very long. Maybe you have that idea one day, right? But then making it into reality, that's a really long process. You know, we published our first kind of simple prototype with kind of the building blocks in this temporary tattoo format in 2011, just to give you a sense of the time scale. You have to stick with these things, you know, it, it's really, it really requires a lot of persistence. I think that's a really important attribute, you know, if you want to do technology development is you got to be patient with it. I've worn lots of these electronic tattoos, you know, I'm very much a user of the technology as we're developing it because it's a kind of a, a human factors issue. Like you could develop a great piece of technology, but if people don't want to use it, it's useless. As I mentioned before, kind of reproduce the gold standard monitoring capabilities that you find in an ICU, let's say in a children's hospital here in Chicago, where we do a lot of work, but they're very uh, cost effective and, and they can be deployed uh, into even very challenging environments. And so we have uh, deployed, I don't know, 10 to 20,000 units into Zambia, Kenya, Ghana, India, Pakistan, and Mexico. And so I spent a couple of weeks myself in Zambia where we're using these devices to monitor maternal, fetal, and neonatal health. So we monitor uh, women uh, during the delivery process. We monitor their health, the health of the fetus, and then the health of the neonate immediately after birth. And kind of seeing the kind of impact that that kind of medical monitoring can bring to care of patients in those parts of the globe is very powerful. It, it serves as a very strong motivating force here in the States, things come up around potentially as this technology progresses into society, into day-to-day -day use outside of a hospital, if people would have to worry about things like data collecting. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, da data management is really important. So I think there are opportunities uh, associated with data, and then there are risks associated mm. with data. The latter having to do with data security and health security. And you have to think about encryption and HIPAA compliant cloud storage and who's getting access to the data, all very important questions. But the data is really enabling in the sense that now we can think about population scale data collection. So I think artificial intelligence, machine learning, convolutional neural networks, all these advances in data analytics are going to intersect with these advances in you know, wearable 2.0 type devices in a very powerful way. So so I, I think there are huge opportunities in, in doing more with the data. Right, right. And I appreciate you bringing that up. You know, as we've been having all these conversations in these different fields of science, there's been constant back and forth between the development of a technology and then the ethics. And so could you talk about accessibility and why it's important to have everybody have an entry point to develop and advance technology and medical treatment? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's really embedded directly into our thinking uh, when, when we're doing our research and coming up with designs is what's going to be cost effective so that it can be made available to everyone, not, not just high-end hospitals, small segments of the population, but really 
everyone and not just here in the U.S., as I mentioned before, LMICs, anywhere across the globe. That That's going to be you know, the most impactful way to do technology development. And that cost consideration has to be built into the thinking. You're thinking about equity, you're thinking about disparities in health outcomes. You can look at the statistics, it's quite striking. And a lot of that is associated with the cost of how uh, care is done today. And I think new technologies can reduce those costs across the board. We're interested in everything, you know, anything that we can get out of our lab into the hands of people, you know, who could benefit from the technology we're all in. You know, we have to prioritize, obviously. And I think for us, you know, we want to focus on serious medical type applications. But a lot of the consumer oriented, as you're suggesting, maybe more mundane applications are still interesting because they can drive volumes and they can drive manufacturing flows and cost. And so if you can... um, Find dual use, right? Not just medical, but also consumer. Uh, there, there's benefits that flow back and forth. Well, thank you so much for explaining this this really like fascinating and specific thing that you do. And yeah, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, Truly. thanks for having me. Well, you know what? I'm still not getting a Fitbit, but um, I really appreciate everything I learned today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of So Curious, presented by the Franklin Institute. The Franklin Institute is a science museum located in Philadelphia. The Franklin Institute's mission is to inspire a passion for learning about science and technology. For more information on everything about the Franklin Institute, visit fi.edu. This podcast is produced by Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast network for businesses looking to develop their own branded podcast content. Check them out at radiokismet.com. There's a lot of people who make this podcast happen. Thanks to the producers, Joy Montefusco and Jayatri Das. Our managing producer, Emily Cherish. Our operations head, Christopher Plant. Our associate producer, Liliana Green. Our audio team, Christian Cedarlund, Goldie Bingley, Lauren DeLuca, and Brad Florent. Our development producer, Opeola Bucola. Our science writer, Kira Veyette. And our graphic designer, Emma Sager. See you next week.